Welcome to the Naked Ambition podcast. In this new series titled Generation AI, we've tracked down global tech leaders, machine learning engineers, designers, and agency heads working with and in generative AI. Through these conversations and the experiments we're running with Gen AI tools for design and innovation, we're hoping to cut through some of the noise and hype to understand how this technology can improve the companies we work with and our own work and even lives. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Stephanie Chaucis, who's currently the Chief Customer Officer at clinical data technology company, Datawi. In this role, Steph uses her passion for creating real-world impact through research translation and commercialization to support the translation of data-driven innovation in Australian healthcare. She also heads up the not-for-profit Intelli HQ, which delivers Australia's first national AI healthcare training program. She has spent seven years as a researcher in molecular science and tech transfer, so really understands the complexity of research translation and commercialization. Now, we had a lot of fun in this conversation. As you're going to see, Steph is super smart and is definitely no newbie when it comes to talking about AI capabilities, specifically how important the quality of data is for training and actually how the team at Tawi get this done. It's a must listen. We really hope you enjoy. Welcome, Steph, and thanks so much for joining us on the Generation AI podcast. It's so good to have you here today. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. It's awesome to be here and talk about AI and health, which I love. So talk about it for hours. Amazing. Well, let's get in and let's do that. So can you, do you want to start telling us about the work that you and the team are doing at Datawi? Yeah, sure. So at Datawi, we are what we call a clinical data activation utility. So to talk about what we do, I need to first, I guess, set the scene and talk about what problem we're solving because it's not something everyone's aware of. So if I just state what we do, it doesn't sound that important, but it really is. So healthcare in Australia is, as we know, we have a great system, you know, compared to the rest of the world, but we are a bit behind in terms of technology and and innovation and especially data capture and the way it's stored. So while some things that you might be, the average person might be used to in terms of data connectivity in other sectors, such as, you know, your Google Maps can talk to your calendar and so on, that is not possible for most healthcare systems in Australia yet because the system is so siloed. There's over eight years of digital healthcare data stored from when the system was first digitized which hold amazing, amazing insights and also the ability to be used for the development of AI tools. But the huge barrier to those tools being developed is that that data is not in a format, connected manner that can be actually useful to AI. So all of that foundational work, which isn't always exciting and the cool you know, AI stuff, but that foundational data connectivity work needs to be done. So at Datawi, we're a private partnership set up by technologist who has many, many years' experience in the field, as well as with a lot of advice from our clinical advisors and other founders who are experienced in innovation and startups. And it was established in partnership with Queensland Health and Advanced Queensland as well to create this data utility to help activate lots of amazing things, and the main one being AI for healthcare. So that's what we do in a nutshell at the TAWI. We take all of the data and put it into our platform that we've developed 
and we do all of that cleansing and what in the field they call data munging. That's a new term that I learned that I hadn't heard before. But, um, you know, it's, it takes about 80% of the time of most research projects is that data cleansing. So we do all that so that anyone who comes in wants to use the clinical data with the right approvals, of course, can get straight into their amazing research and innovation instead of having to do all that work. It's so interesting and I'm excited to have you on on, in this topic because a lot of the conversations we're having around AI at the moment, it keeps on coming up where any expert that we speak to is saying a lot of organisations are getting very excited about the AI opportunity, but so much of it comes down to the quality of the data that you have. So it's kind Mm -hmm. of, you know, rubbish in, rubbish out is a little bit of a case of that. Can you talk to us about the, the big opportunity that AI has in healthcare specifically? Mm-hmm. So there's really two main opportunities that AI presents and actually generally, but then I'll give you examples in healthcare, but generally what AI will do is one, it will be able to do the mundane stuff for us as we're already seeing. So ChatGPT can, you know, write a document for you that want to write with prompts and so on. So taking away time doing mundane tasks Now, this is critical in healthcare. You can save clinicians from having to be entering data and they can focus on using their skill sets where they're most valued, which is caring for the patient. You can prevent, you know, latencies in the system and so on. So one opportunity is in that automation of of mundane tasks that take a lot of manpower, but, you know, our brains are much more advanced than needing to do those tasks. The second one, which is a bit more of the exciting one to talk about, is prediction into the future. So again, this could apply to any sector, but if we're talking about healthcare, what we look at now is how could AI tools and specifically predictive models be used to tell us about a patient, specifically about one patient's future based upon its analysis of collective data from previous patients who've looked similar and incoming data from that current patient. So, you know, We've all been to the doctor or, you know, hopefully not, but been to hospital or had a family or friend go through serious health challenges. And I'm sure that we all have had the experience of the doctor saying, well, we need to see how this goes. We need to see what medicine you need to be on. We're going to come back and track you. But if your doctor could say, well, you know, I've got this tool that will help me know exactly how you will react to this medication or how you will look in three months on this versus this, that would significantly reduce the the stress of healthcare and obviously in more severe cases, save lives, create immense efficiency. So the prediction of the future and being able to personalise medicine is one of the amazing things that we're seeing that AI will be able to do. It's incredible. Talk to us about how that works. So you talked to, you've mentioned eight years of data Mm-hmm. That is sitting there since we started recording. Yeah. The data munging that you and the team at Datawi are doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How does that help us with this? Is it predictive analytics? Is that the right way to explain it? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's definitely um, one approach to it. So when you know, a clinician is treating a patient, they'll be looking at that patient's records, seeing their medical history, and then making a decision about that treatment based on a current medical advice. So this is the current medication for this ailment and be their own knowledge of the interacting factors between, you know, if it's a child, I know that I should give them this amount and so on. Now, we are amplifying that, you know, a thousand times, if not more, with using AI, where that information that's being used is A, not only just based on what one clinician knows, but based on a whole suite of medical knowledge. So, this is where we can get into talking about democratizing, where you could have the a 
essentially if you picture a brain of the, the world's best cardiologists in the world, an algorithm with their knowledge being applied at a remote area that doesn't have a cardiologist that can inform clinicians there on the best decisions to make. So how it works is a model is trained for a specific purpose. So you might think of, you know, a great case is sepsis. It's a huge killer in hospitals, number one cause of death in ICUs, and really unfortunate because it's often secondary. So people might come into the ICU with something else, and then unfortunately they pass away from sepsis, which is a bacterial infection in your blood. It's a very complex presentation. So the clinicians we work with tell us that, you know, you can't know that someone's going to have this until they start showing symptoms, and by then it can often be too late, even if you give them treatment immediately. So being able to know when somebody's going to go into that based on lots of different signs they're showing that are maybe not obvious to a human or we could think of are not visible to the human eye. So what we do is we take a model that takes in a whole bunch of data, for example, raw ECG signals that might be showing little blips that AI can determine, oh, this blip combined with this other indicator means sepsis in 24 hours. You know, um, so that AI would take in all that information it might also be scans, that patient's history, that patient's genetics, that patient's ethnicity, a whole bunch of information which we as humans cannot take in and then make it a calculation about, but this model can. So we train that model on a set of data where we know the outcome for that person. So we can say, we know from the, our historical records, these 10,000 people did get sepsis. Now we say to the model, go and find a way to predict from all these people early indicators that they were going to get it that we couldn't pick up. So once you've developed that model that knows how to do that, you then test it in the real world where you don't know what the outcome's going to be. And it then takes in live data coming in from that patient. So for example, you get a blood test, it gets fed into that model, and the model looks at it and says, well, based on all these other factors and your blood test, you're a low risk for sepsis because the other 10,000 people I've seen didn't get sepsis unless they had X, Y, and Z. So that's sort of a simple explanation of how it works. Obviously, it's, it's, there's a lot of complexity and that's why we need AI, but that hopefully gives a bit of an example of, of how it works. Such a detailed example. Thanks for that, Steph, as well. Does the output become one other data point that they look at and then the doctors make a decision? So if that was sort of at the moment right. of triage, yeah, we see what's happening there. We use yeah. that and then we make a decision themselves. Or do you see this almost being getting to the point in the future where the AI is making the decision about the patient's yeah, treatment. Interesting question and a very controversial one because then that means that the AI needs to become a medical device. So software is a medical device because you are guaranteeing that it is accurate to a certain extent. That's a very tricky space for AI because it's not as straightforward as, you know, taking an actual physical device or a vaccine or, or something else. AI is very complex and it changes, like a predictive model will change how it works depending on who it's, like the population that's being trained on or working on. So for the current future, I see it will just be a clinical decision support tool. So that doesn't require, you know, an in-depth therapeutic analysis because it's just, again, like you said, another point of information. But this is where it gets very interesting because for the doctor to use a tool like that, they need to understand how the AI came to that conclusion. So this is where we say you need explainability. So the doctor might see that it's saying this person has a 90% risk and the doctor may agree with that and that's fine and they might be quite straightforward in their decision. But if they don't, they might want to see, okay, well, what is it? You know, And the AI could say, well, it's because bloods with this, blah, 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 this and go through. That might sound simple, but 
it's not always as easy to get that explainability with AI. So, you know, I'm not an technical enough of an expert to go into that and to, to all the different avenues to being able to obtain that. But that's an area of contention over do we need to require AI tools to be explainable or not? Because by not doing that, you might improve the flexibility and the complexity of the tools. But by enforcing explainability, you can reduce the clinical use of it. So yeah, interesting question I don't have a good answer for. That was a pretty good answer, I think, so far. I mean, some of this as well, like all of this, it's emerging, isn't it? So it's a bit of a wait and see. We've got to see this in the hands of practitioners themselves, and then maybe they can start to inform some of that conversation about how we want it to be used. Steph, you touched on at the beginning of the conversation, you were saying, you know, here in Australia, we're not necessarily as advanced as other countries when it comes to, you know, innovation and technology. Where where do you think we are in terms of the playing field when it comes to AI and healthcare specifically? And where where do we need Mm -hmm. to be? Yeah. So again, interestingly, that conversation is had a lot without talking specifically about data. And, you know, I will just always bring it up because it's important. And I think not everyone is aware of that all AI requires data. All AI requires data. And all AI will perform only as good as the data that you give it. So if we have a system where we don't have good regulation about data sharing, we don't have the capability to share data widely, we don't have good, you know, connectivity between data and so on, it doesn't matter how much AI technology is developed in our country, we can't apply it. So Australia, I would say, is I mean, in terms of AI adoption, we're pretty much on par with, you know, the UK, the US. We know that China and India, because they're very IT-focused countries, they're doing, they're applying AI a lot more, just globally. But if we look in healthcare, again, AI in healthcare is quite difficult. So it's not like any country has got fully AI-enabled hospitals, which is the dream. But certainly we are held back by our ability to um, share data widely enough and also translate technologies. And one of those reasons is because of the way our health system is, because it's a public system, which is great for accessibility relative to other countries like the US who have a more private system. Innovation will always be faster in a private sector for many reasons. And so that's why in Australia it can be a little bit slow. And that's not to say that, yeah, that's not necessarily criticism on the healthcare system here. It's just the nature of the way it's set up. doesn't support innovation in AI as significantly as as a private health system? Good answer. Very democratic as well. (laughs) (laughs) It's tricky. It's hard, I think. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about the challenges associated with model translation. So this is an interesting thing. I recently spoke about it at at a conference we had and the reason this is interesting, because again, this is saying, and I, I think just for the for the listeners to give examples that speak to everyone. So if we think about the vaccine, right, you know, that we know the vaccines could be developed overseas, you know, top research institutes that have great funding, and then we could get them in Australia. And that's a really positive thing. You know, there's wide views on vaccines, but you think about vaccines or other drugs that are really useful to us, a lot of them are developed overseas, and then we can bring them to Australia and use them here. And we want that. We don't want to have to build the wheel from scratch in Australia all the time. So the challenge with AI is that there are some fantastic tools that have been developed overseas that we can't implement here 
And the reason is this challenge that you, the, the question is about is translating models. Well, we do know Stanford in the US and John Topkins developed a really good sepsis model, which speaking to the example I gave earlier, where sepsis could be predicted 48 hours out with a very high accuracy. So over there, they are now seeing a lot less people suffering from severe impacts of sepsis or or preventing deaths of sepsis because they get a much earlier warning. Now, that's obviously something we want here too. If I go to hospital, I want to know we have the best tools to prevent anything bad happening to me. And if those tools exist overseas, I would hope we could use them here. But again, with translating a model, you need to be able to teach that model in the way you might teach a child or, you know, a uni student with all the information you have about how the system looks in the current place it's going to work. A simple example is in the US where this model was developed, they would have trained on data that used Fahrenheit and we use Celsius. That might seem like a simple, okay, we'll just change it in the model. But when you amplify that by, you know, a hundred other parameters, such as they use micrograms per litre for this parameter and we use milligrams and so on. There's all these little details that you can't just simply apply the model to a new data set. You need to make sure that it aligns. And there are a lot of complications with doing that. And even when you do that, often you can find you're still not getting as good results because there's just so many interacting factors. The definition of the disease in the new country you're applying it to might be different and so on. So while in one way and regulators might be looking at AI in the way you'd look at a medical technology, it's quite different when you're looking at bringing it across to different countries. So it's certainly a challenge, again, comes back to the data and also having the capabilities in our countries to be able to do that. So do we want to rely on the healthcare system to do that? Is that a role for private companies who are experts in technology to support that? Is it up to the government to have a new branch who focuses on doing those kinds of things? You know, this is stuff that we don't have set up because the field is evolving so rapidly that we need to, you know, move a bit faster in terms of how are we going to support adoption and also protection of the use of AI. It's so interesting. Like, I mean, and it may be something you don't necessarily have all the answers to, but is there a model that you think, you know, could assist in us in terms of the speed of adoption at the moment? You mentioned at Tatawi, your public-private as an organisation. Like, what are some of the ways that Given the health system that we've got, given the current state, what are ways that maybe government and private sector could work together more effectively to do, Mm. to accelerate maybe some of this adoption? Yeah, obviously I'm going to be biased because I work in, (laughs) you know, in a public partnership and in the industry side of it. Absolutely, there's room for policy change in the way that industry is partnered with healthcare to support more rapid implementation of innovation. So, you know, we all know that with working government organisations is slower because there needs to be a lot of protections and policies in place. But for, you know, really catching up to speed and, and maintaining speed in terms of keeping up the, where the world is going with AI, we absolutely need industry expertise to be partnered closely with healthcare. And on the flip side, it's much, much better for innovations to be used and developed, sorry, to be developed by companies that are being informed by those who will use them. And the reason I say that is that sometimes you can have industries, so, you know, technologists building tools saying, oh, how cool if we built this thing for healthcare. But then after completing developing that tool and going to healthcare, they say, well, this is interesting, but we would never use it because of X, Y, and Z. So, you know, the partnership is key going both ways. We need clinician input. We need healthcare system input into what their major problems are. 
and then industry who are experts in AI and data and tech can then advise, well, here's what can be done. And then it's a conversation because as you raise awareness for people on what can be done, then their ideas can expand exponentially. And we've seen that with ChatGPT is now there's all these plugins, new people are finding new ways to use it. If you ask someone, you know, a year ago, okay, how would you use this tool that could generate words when you ask a question, they might not really, you know, have some great ideas because they haven't understood deeply what it can do. So that partnership, and I'm fortunate that I sit right in the middle of that in my role. I get to go and speak directly with the clinicians and the executives and then also speak with our tech team and our technologists and watch that translation open up as the understanding on both sides increases. And that's so, it's so key. And again, that is one of the reasons that AI innovations are not accelerated in health is because there's not a strong clinician-led workforce working on that. This is something I'm really curious about actually as well, and I think you've started to touch on it there, how the actual mainstreaming of AI through the new generative AI tools, that specifically large language models that are now available that everyone is using, or most people are using in their daily life, has that been a big catalyst for you and the team and some of the conversations that you're having? Is it putting um, AI, I presume, is firmly on the agenda in these sorts of organisations? How is that playing out? I would say absolutely. I mean, look, correlation isn't causation, I can't say for sure. But having been in this for over three years now, I've seen the change. So when we first started, I would, you know, go into healthcare and explain what we're building and so on and be very excited because I'm like, this is what we need and this is what we can do. And I wouldn't say I would get blank stares, but it just would not really ignite people's imaginations in the way I was hoping. And it was a bit deflating because I would think, oh, I don't know what, like how to communicate this in the potential. And now it's a different game. And it has been since ChatGPT came out. I think the conversation around AI really accelerated and people's, the tangibility of it and what it can do became more real to people. And we have absolutely seen a maturity in people's understanding and it doesn't take much, right? I think some for some people, they hear AI and they're like, that sounds like futuristic, iRobot, Will Smith, we get that a lot. Well, I don't know. I don't want to, you know, that's for computer people. And sometimes I like to use the analogy of like when the internet first became a thing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the internet is not just for computer science people. It's something, a tool that we all use and it can do a million different things depending on how you use it. So it's more about how do we understand what it can do? We don't need to understand how to build it ourselves. I certainly don't. But when you know what it can do, you can come up with new ideas on what you could do with it. And that's what I really want to see expanding in healthcare is widespread understanding of what can be done so that then people with the problems that need to solve it, which is our clinicians and even patients too, can speak to, okay, well, what if we had this? What if we had that? And support that innovation, advocate from inside the healthcare system. Yeah. No, so important. I think it's so good to hear as well. Anything that really progresses this is going to be a positive definitely on Mm. your side. Can we step away a little bit? Obviously, you've got, you mentioned you've been at this for three years. You've got a really impressive background in science, in data science and in health as well. Are there other applications for the work that you're doing at Datawi outside health potentially? So the, you know, the technology that you're building, what are some of those other other maybe adjacent application areas in other sectors? Yeah, for sure. So really what we've done, you could you could apply it anywhere. So anywhere that there's multiple data sets that need to be combined and cleansed in a sector-specific way, absolutely, you could do that. 
the thing is a lot of other sectors do already have that capability. So again, that's why what we're doing in healthcare is is new, but in other sectors, it's already being done. But if you look at the more advanced things like the creating models, I did think of a good example earlier, which may be a bit controversial or topical or triggering. But, you know, imagine if we had a model that could predict what decisions, you know, that the RBA should make on rates <laughs> or financial decisions, you know, for yeah. Australia. So, and it's kind of a joke, but it's it's definitely something that could be a reality. It's feeding in enough data to say, how will this impact, you know, the economy? What would be a financial decision support tool? And that's just one example. And then you could look at defence, you could look at agriculture, and then there's heaps, there is heaps being done in those spaces. So in Australia, we have quite a good supportive group of programs, especially in Queensland. So we were originally funded by Advanced Queensland, who support a number of different projects that are using AI. I'm just trying to think of another example. I mean, I know that there's things like backburning and pool burning up in the more regional areas is really key that needs undertaking that needs to be done every year. But there can be challenges in predicting what's the best day to do that. How will the fire act when you start it, you know, and so on. And if you have enough historical data from satellites that you pull in, as well as data from the ground, you can start doing some analytics that can help inform decision making. So it's really in any sector making our decision making more precise and more informed, which, you know, I wish I had that for every decision I had to make. (laughs) It would be amazing. So let's stay on that as well, because you've talked about maybe some of the suggestions that you're talking about for other applications being a little bit controversial. And I'm sure it comes up quite a bit in the conversations you have around the technology you've got, around dealing with the inherent bias that comes with this sort of data-driven decision-making. And I know we've Mm. spoken about as well, obviously humans are biased as well. Mm -hmm. So it has just one other data point. What are the conversations that are coming up around Mm. the bias associated with AI and I think specifically in health like it would be it's one area where people are deeply concerned about that in terms of profiling can you tell us a bit about where that conversation is at yeah um, and how you even as a group are kind of overcoming some of that perhaps Mm -hmm. yeah so definitely a big area of concern for some groups so just to give an example for people listening so let's continue with the sepsis prediction model example if it is trained on data that doesn't include Indigenous people, then it may not recognise sepsis in Indigenous people, and then as a result, those groups will receive worse care. That's a very simplified direct example. It also depends upon the clinician, obviously, but let's just use that as an example. That's not good at all, and you can see that if that's amplified, that has very negative consequences for those groups, and whether it be Indigenous people, whether it be women, whether it be other marginalised groups that aren't as represented, we will only be amplifying an issue that already exists. And that's something that I say because some people are saying, oh, we should stop AI now because of all these issues. And my personal opinion on that, and it's not, you know, it's not representing anyone else's opinion, but my opinion is that we know that medical research is already biased. We know that historically many groups have been left out of research and that's changing and we're all aware of that now and that's great, it's moving forward. But it means that, that issue is not there because of AI. The issue is that it's existed. It's so important that we're aware of it and it's so important that we're aware of how AI can amplify it and then we can address it. Again, I'm going to come back to the same answer, but it's true. If you have data that is actually representative of ideal healthcare, then you can train a model 
that will represent ideal healthcare for those groups. That in and of itself is a challenge if we don't have that in our systems already. So this is where you you can look into, okay, well, in training a model, do we want to use a combination of real-world data and synthetic data that represents a healthcare system that we actually value in terms of being unbiased? So I'm sure a lot of people have heard of the examples in the US of African-Americans having worse health outcomes in healthcare, not being treated as quickly as, you know, their white counterparts and so on. So if you were to use that data, the AI doesn't know that you're saying that's not great. The AI just gets that data going, oh, this is how these people are treated and this is how these are. So I'll continue to build a model that perpetuates that system. So, you know, one idea floating around is, well, you would take that data, but then you would adjust it with synthetic data that that changes the way those people are represented in the real world and to see that they're treated equally and have equally as good healthcare outcomes and tell the model to do that to move towards those outcomes instead of the real ones. So we just need to get really honest about what our systems look like currently instead of going, oh, it's the AI that's going to bring this in. It's looking at, well, how are we going to address this and admit that it's a current issue anyway and make things better as we develop this new tech. So well put as well. It's just an amplification of what is already going on at the moment, I think. It's not the cause of. Okay, beautiful. So I'd like to talk just maybe a little bit. We've, We've discussed you know, what you're doing at Datawi, but another part of the work that you do is also IntelliHQ. So IntelliHQ Mm -hmm. is a not-for-profit that we mentioned in the introduction that you've specifically set up in order to increase AI and data literacy within healthcare. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about the importance, you think, of that understanding that, like, what is the sort of level of understanding you think most people need to have within the sector Mm -hmm. and even more generally in AI? Yeah, I, I love this work that I do. So I'm fortunate that I get to work directly with groups of clinicians who are really keen to learn. So they come to us to do our courses because they want to know. They've heard about AI, but they don't have time to go do a whole degree in it and they don't necessarily want to, but they want to just upskill a little bit more and learn more. So I think that the importance for clinicians and healthcare executives and their understanding is definitely around the risks and the benefits So that when it comes to decision-making, you know, for an executive, okay, should I consider moving forward with this AI project in my system or should I not? What are the risks I need to consider? Is our organisation mature enough for this and so on? So important for decision-making. Also understanding policy and so on without needing to be in-depth, just having a good framework to go on, which is what we deliver in our executive course. We provide a framework for how you would make a decision, what you need to consider. And then for the clinicians themselves who will most likely more be the users, is understanding how AI is developed. So a bit of what I spoke to, well, you just train it on data and, you know, if you're looking at a predictive tool, train it on data and then you test it in the real world and so on. If they're using it and something seems odd or they don't agree with an output, they're not confused by how come their decision is different to the AI tools. Or if they're using it in an automated way and there are the faults in it, they're not saying, oh, this AI is worthless. They understand, oh, has it been given this data set though? It seems to be missing this and that. So clinicians will be co-developers in this technology. It's not going to be perfect straight off the bat as no tech is, but the more that clinicians understand what it's doing in general and how it's working, they can help improve safety through co-design through saying I observed this I know that it's fed this data or it should be or shouldn't be you know and so on that will greatly accelerate uh, moving towards very safe validated AI furthermore in clinicians innovating so we do have a lot of clinicians who have their own ideas after they do our course 
and we support them as much as we can to move that idea forward to a research project and then hopefully toward an actual innovation. So I think the importance in terms of just the baseline of what everyone should understand is generally how it works and what it's doing so it's not a mystery anymore and there's not a fear around it. And then also understanding the requirements on them as a user and then moving forward into where people might want to know in healthcare is how they could innovate. So understanding enough to know what new ideas can I come up with to solve problems in my system using this tech. Everything you've said is so applicable across all industries as well, Mm. making decisions about when to use it, when not to. Yeah. Yeah. Where is And I think I love that, you know, they're going to be co-developers in all of this, in the adoption of it, and even that co-design option as well. This has been so interesting, Steph. Thank you. I really appreciate the time that you have given us to talk about this today. Is there anything I haven't asked that you wanted to share as well about where do you see the sort of future of AI in healthcare over the next couple of years? Yeah, that's oh, that's a big question. And <laughs> um and no one knows necessarily. So I can only give what I think. I do think that we're not going to move as fast as we would like to. So we'll, we'll get more and more widespread understanding of the benefits. And then the barrier that will be come across is the data again. So there will probably be an eagerness to suddenly, and I think it'll come quite suddenly for a widespread use of these tools, but we'll be still trying to wade through these barriers. This is something Datawi is solving for critical care, but you know it's not going to take one company like Datawi to solve that. It's something that we need you know, multi-industry partners to get on board with and solve this problem, and then we can have more rapid adoption. What I definitely do hope is that one of the major issues, which is the capacity of our healthcare system is addressed. We know, you know, the ramping problems, the nursing challenges, nurses feeling burnt out and so on. I do see and I do hope that within the next two years, we can start using some of those lower hanging fruit, lower risk tools to help automate stuff so that we can improve, yeah, the capacity. That's a a big place we need to start in using AI. And, And there are things already happening there. It's not like it's not happening, but seeing it move ahead more widespread. So that would be my my vision. I like that really tangible one as well. I think definitely yeah. with the healthcare providers that we've partnered with, that nurse burnout is very real and there's never been a, it's a global problem, mm. but also mm-hmm. a very local one for us. So yeah, thank you again, Steph. So interesting. No um, where can you. people get in touch with you if they're interested in learning more about what Tawi are doing and what you're doing with IntelliHQ as well? Yeah, for sure. So the easy one is LinkedIn if you don't want to remember an email address, but do you have an email address? So I don't know if you want to post it somewhere. Yeah, we'll post it's, that in the comments yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Perfect. Beautiful. Just steph.chousis at datawi.com. Probably will need to see how my last name is spelled. So yeah, I'm sure you'll put that in the description. But no, thank you so much for having me on. It was fantastic to talk with you and such an interesting area. So yeah, appreciate it. Keep up the work. It's beautiful. Thanks, Steph. Thank you.